In this episode of The Startup Project, I talked to Pankaj Jain, who wears many hats and is currently working as Chief Operating Officer of Workamo and also is an advisor for Angelist India's The Collective Fund. Pankaj has seen the evolution of Indian startup ecosystem both as a founder, as an investor, and both as an insider and an outsider. We had a wide-ranging conversation from various topics, including how Geo affected India's ecosystem to how Angel India thinks about angel investing itself. I had a blast talking to Pankaj. Hope you will too. Hey Pankaj, welcome to the show. Hi Nataraj, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Uh, so f- the first uh, topic of our conversation I want to start with is this idea of community building, right? Uh, you, you've started Startup uh, Saturday, you've started, started Startup Weekend and you know you have a head start. So you're sort of the OG community creator uh, in an Indian ecosystem. What was that experience like? Uh, it was an, uh, incredible. Um, so Startup Saturday um, came out of really a necessity. I had moved to India uh, in 2007 and I had uh, just begun my startup uh, after moving. And I was having a ton of trouble hiring people, looking for a co-founder, uh, you know, the, you name it, the, all of the usual problems that uh, first-time founders typically deal with. And, um, you know, I had to build a network in India, which I didn't have. And, you know, 2007, there weren't a whole lot of startups or a whole lot of events or a community that you can tap into relatively easily. So I found a bar camp community. I got involved in organizing bar camps first. Um, I think bar camp Delhi five and bar camp Delhi six were the first two that I had gotten involved with. And then you started uh, startup weekend. And then I started startup Saturday. So I, uh, through bar camp, I met a bunch of folks uh, across Bombay and Bangalore that were uh, looking to start something a little bit more formal. They had been doing a meetup in these cities called Startup Saturday, and they wanted to start something a little bit more formal. So I got involved with them and uh, became a co-founder of Head Start Network, which was running uh, Startup Saturday across, I think at that time it was five cities uh, or four cities. Um, And then we kind of expanded. I think today it's like across 20 cities or more uh, in India. And so that was like 2008, 2009, 2010. And why do you think like you were good at community building? Like, I mean, looking back, what made you good at community building? Uh, I don't know if I was good at it or not, um, but I certainly had a passion for it. And so, you know, it started with uh, a a need that I had, which was to meet people, right? Um, and those people could be potential co-founders. They could be um, potentially uh, people that I might hire. Um, that's really the two lenses that I was looking at it from. So if I look at like community building right now, right? Like everything right now is revolving around community, whether it's podcasts or, you know, influencer economy or passion economy, what do you see the difference between like creating a community online versus offline? Like, do you see any similarities or differences or sort of what advice you would give to someone who's trying to build a community online now? Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, I think online communities are very difficult uh, to do. Uh, I I know people do them really, really well. They do them um, quickly and they scale them rapidly. 
Uh, for me, I found building online communities to be very difficult, partly because you don't have that um, face-to-face contact with people. And I think there's, you know, unfortunately, uh, 2020 has really forced all of us to go online and stay online. But, you know, there, there's a certain serendipity when things are offline and when things are in person. And, you know, you don't capture that in an online community. So it's it's easier to get more people into your community, assuming that you're marketing correctly and getting the right message out to folks. But I think it's hard to really build strong bonds within that community. Uh, you know, if I look at the Startup Saturday Head Start community, or if I look at the Startup Weekend communities, uh, both within India and internationally, the bonds that people have created are very, very strong. Uh, partly because you were sitting face to face, you would see each other on a regular basis, and you were able to build deeper rooted relationships. Um, you know, I think breaking bread uh, is is important to build relationships. And unfortunately, that's something that we can't really do today. Um, so I think, you know, for me, at least I find building online communities difficult, partly because they are less personal. Um, they require a very different type of attention. Um, and, you know, it's easier to provide that attention. But it's also, I, I think there's a bit of a disconnect. And so you can have large online communities. You know, uh, I started the Indian Startup Club on Clubhouse uh, a couple of months ago, and we just crossed a thousand uh, members right before New Year's. So, you know, relatively quick in terms of uh, building up the numbers there. But, you know, being able to really build relationships is a whole different problem, right? And I, I think that's one of the things that I see in online communities that's much, much harder to, to do is to build strong, deep relationships. Um, yeah. I mean, one thing to me, it struck as uh, I think the pandemic sort of changed the idea of, you know, building online communities. I mean, people are not open to have or meet random people or on internet on different communities. And probably the reason why Clubhouse even exploded is because of the pandemic in a sense that people were much more open to the idea of, you know, having conversations uh, by meeting people through online events. Because pre-pandemic for me, if you want to like talk to like-minded individuals, uh, I used to mostly find people here in startup communities in Seattle. But right now, even in the US, like. Uh, whether it's lunch club or different sort of tools are emerging where I think there is an avenue to sort of build off even deeper conversation. I mean, we met on clubhouse, right? So yep. uh, it, I think it's, it's that one of uh, things that sort of the positive outcomes of the pandemic is that people have changed their opinion of, you know, uh, can relationships be built online? And I'm sort of hopeful that more and more of this will happen. Uh, yeah. but, uh, one of the interesting things is, uh, you've, uh, I mean, sort of closed your company and you've talked about, uh, you know, your difficulty in working with Indian startup ecosystem. And, you know, for example, you've talked about, uh, uh, how difficult it was, uh, to actually getting, uh, police verification, uh, in India, but <laughs> you actually mentioned one, uh, interesting thing, which, uh, I want to sort of explore is you said you learned a lot about yourself. Yeah. Uh, with that experience, but you never actually talked about what you actually learned about it. So I want to sort of uh, <laughs> go into the direction of what did you learn about yourself um, 
in that process that you didn't know before? So a lot of it was just um, a lot of intuitive guessing, um, right? Like I, I think over time, um, you know, part of it was because of uh, the professional uh, direction that I took. A lot of what drove me was um, data and, you know, analyzing things and making decisions based off of that. And in India, I started relearning that relying on my intuition and my gut was probably more important than the data. You had to bring the two together. But that was one of the things that I realized is like, you know, don't rely only on data, uh, really rely on your gut. And, you know, there, there are exceptions, of course, but, um, you know, kind of finding that medium is, is really important. Right. Um, so that was one of the things that I learned about myself is don't be focused only on the data and, you know, the analytics behind making a decision or hiring somebody or whatever, but also rely on your intuition a lot more. Um, I also learned that, you know, I was far more capable of adapting than I previously thought I was. Um, you know, moving across the world. Uh, I had never lived in India before that. So moving to essentially what was a new country that I had spent a lot of time visiting and had many relatives in, um, but I really didn't understand, you know, popular Indian culture. I didn't really understand, you know, like I, I don't, I think in the last 30 years, I might have seen maybe two or three Bollywood movies um, I've never watched Indian television. Even when I lived there, I never had uh, television there. Um, so, you know, it, it, without connecting to popular culture, it, it, it's, it's hard to really connect with people. Uh, so I, I started having some difficulty with that when, when, I, when I first landed. And then I started realizing that you know, here are certain things that I need to change about myself and certain things that I need to do in order to uh, really kind of integrate in and make friends and meet people. And uh, so, you know, it, it may seem like um, something that's natural for a lot of people, but um, it, it can be very difficult also. So I, 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 I realized that, you know, these are things that I need to do. So I adapted. Um, I also realized that, you know, I was pretty bad at hiring people. Um, you know, prior to moving to India, I had, uh, you know, hired a lot of people across a lot of different locations. I never had to fire anybody in my life. And when I moved to India, it was the complete opposite. There was one person, he was actually the first person I hired who stayed with me throughout the whole journey. But other than him, um, it was a revolving door. Um, like, it was really tough. Uh, you know, I had to really re reassess, like, what are, the, what are the parameters and what's the criteria that I'm uh, hiring people according to and reevaluate that and rethink a lot of those things. Uh, so kind of ties into some of the other things that I had learned about myself while I was there. Um, I also realized for the first time in my life that I'm more American than I am Indian. Um, 
prior to moving to India, I always thought of myself as being Indian first and American second. And after moving to India, it's ironic. That's when I realized that, you know, the way I think, the things that I value, I'm more American than I am Indian. And, you know, I uh, developed a much deeper appreciation for both sides of myself, the the Indian side and the American side. Um, and, you know, I think that was coming to that realization is what allowed me to do a lot of the other things that I started doing uh, after I wound up shutting down my startup. Because um, I realized there's certain strengths and certain weaknesses that uh, both sides have. So why not use them um, as much as I can to bring a certain way of thinking to other people? And I think with the startup community, just in general, the way startups operate uh, is... It, you know, it's more about getting things done and people are a little bit more open-minded. So I think that kind of really fit well with what was needed uh, amongst the startup ecosystem in India at that time. So, you know, that to me was like an interesting uh, learning that I had. Um, and, there, you know, there's m many others and we could probably like sit here for another hour and talk about a lot of the other ones. But, you know, to me, it was it, more than what I learned uh, it was a time for me to learn how to introspect, right? Like every day as a founder, uh, failing was becoming the norm. And prior to that, uh, you know, I, I'd been lucky. I never really had any failures. Well, you know, not <laughs> LTCM was a big failure, but not for me. Uh, for me, it was a great learning experience uh, very early in my career. But, you know, it it was the first time that on a daily basis, I had to really struggle uh, to find any sort of wins as an entrepreneur in India. And, you know, that forced me to learn how to introspect and to, to look inwards and see what am I thinking? What am I doing? Who am I? Uh, and what should I change about myself? Um, so, you know, that was probably the most important thing that I learned about myself was like, how do I, how do I look into myself and really uh, objectively uh, criticize myself and change what needs to be changed? You're also like, uh, I mean, it was almost like the fertile ground when you came into Indian startup uh, ecosystem, right? And at some point, uh, I mean, after building these networks and, you know, with your experience uh, with your own startup, uh, you also started uh, doing some angel investing, right? So what is the first uh, angel investment check that you've written? And what was your thinking at that point of time? Did you, I mean, did you think like a traditional angel investor uh, in US who's, who, you know, he was thinking it as a portfolio or uh, were you just, uh, you know, it's just like you met a great guy and you invested. So what was the process like? What was your thinking behind writing that first check? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I would argue that when I landed in India, it wasn't fertile ground. It was more of a desert. Uh, there was nothing growing. It was just, you know, arid land. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that that was changing. And I think, you know, the real first tipping point was in 2010 uh, when you saw a real first boom in the e-commerce space. Um, and I think that started changing people's mindsets. And when I say people, I mean, really investors. Uh, there were no angel investors to really speak of in India at that time, except for a handful. Uh, and, 
you know, then on the founder side as well, uh, it really got founders thinking about what was possible. So, you know, coming back to the angel side, you know, at that time we had Indian angel network, we had Mumbai angels, but there were, there weren't really many independent angels uh, in India. So um, people were still operating as a group. And I think a lot of the angel networks uh, were really thinking about uh, investing in a very traditional sense at that time, 2010, 2012. My first angel check was in 2012 uh, into a company, uh, was it 2012? I'm trying to think back. Yeah, I think it was 2012. Um, so, you know, time is a little off because sometimes you agree to invest in a company and the uh, investment doesn't close for months afterwards. Um, yeah. So there were, there were two investments that happened virtually simultaneously. The first one was DataWeave. Uh, DataWeave was a company that, I had spent a lot of time with and working with when I was at T-Labs. And then there was another company called Gaze Metrics. Gaze Metrics was a company that actually came out of a startup weekend event that we had done. Um, and I had gotten to know the founders quite well. I wound up investing in the company at uh, 500 startups uh, as well as uh, personally. And the, well, I invested first and then uh, 500 startups invested after I joined 500 as well. But, you know, I, I didn't really think about either of these companies in terms of a portfolio. I, I really thought about the the founders and what did I like about the founders? What did I like about working with the founders? What did I see the potential for what they were trying to do, not from a economic perspective, but from really a product and technology perspective. Um, and I think the economics would come later um, if they were able to do what they wanted to do. So I don't really think about it um, as a professional angel investor. I, in a lot of ways, I still don't. Um, you know, uh, my, my angel investing is still kind of, uh, it's a little bit more narrow than it used to be, but you know, there are exceptions to the rules. Um, that happen all the time. And I think, you know, for, for me, one thing that stayed consistent over the last eight, nine, 10 years, it has been the fact that I'm more likely to write a check into a company where I connect with the founders on some level. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'm wrong. I, I wind up being wrong about that. But uh, in most cases, I think if I establish a strong connection on a individual level, then the company still may not work out, but the relationship does work out. And I think, you know, that's one of the things from an angel investor perspective that I uh, have learned since then is just thinking about longer term opportunities that come because you've built strong relationships. Did you always engage with all the founders that you've invested with and uh, sort of been their, uh, you know, go-to guy or was it more of a passive investing? So, uh, you know, it was, you know, I think angel investing to a large degree has to be passive. Uh, you don't want to kind of stick your uh, finger into the pie when it's not wanted, right? Uh, but you also want to be the... Um, the cheerleader when it's needed, right? Um, 
so the way my angel investing happened, uh, you know, for many years, I couldn't angel invest uh, when I was at 500. But prior to that, and post that, um, in most cases, the investments that I've done have been people that I have known, uh, people that I have met, maybe not have had deep relationships with. uh, But there have there have been people that I have met through, whether it was startup Saturday, startup weekend, um, 500 startups, uh, some of the advisory work that I had done uh, over the last couple of years. So it, there have been some exceptions where, you know, I didn't know the founders before. Um, but in those cases, I, I, I'm always clear to those founders, uh, look, if you want to check from me, I have to get to know you. Uh, it's not about the business only. It's about who you are and who I am. And there needs to be some sort of relationship that gets built before I'm going to write a check. Um, And yes, there are exceptions to that, of course. But generally speaking, I think, you know, most of the companies that I've invested in uh, will reach out to me when there is something that they need help with. Uh, Many of them I don't hear from for months uh, or even years, uh, but they know that if there's something that they need help with and they reach out to me, that I will do what I can to help them. So, which is nice, you know, like, okay, you know, you kind of stay in the background, you're there. It's almost like, um, you know, having like kind of like a, a big brother or big sister relationship. Like, you know, you know, somebody's got your back and you can reach out to them when you need that help. Uh, but you know, they're not going to interfere otherwise. So that's generally the approach that I take. You, you've touched upon uh, working at uh, T labs, right? I mean, uh, that's the incubator uh, by times internet, which is sort of iconic in its own way. Uh, what was the experience like working with them and what was the model that you guys took uh, in terms of like incubating startups? Yeah, so, you know, T-Labs was a typical accelerator model. Um, you know, a, a it was very similar in the Techstars and 500 startups uh, model of having an on-site incubator where a physical incubator where these startups would come and work out of. Um, you know, Abhishek, my partner at T-Labs, and I both felt that having that um, in-person incubator was important. Um, serendipity happens uh, when people are, are around each other. And so it was kind of designed as a cohort-based accelerator right from the beginning. Um, you know, the plan was to do about eight to 10 startups per cohort, uh, run two cohorts per year, uh, primarily consumer uh, focused because, you know, that's kind of what time's internet understood and did, uh, but there wasn't necessarily any um, limitations saying that, you know, it has to be something that would be strategic four times internet. Um, You know, the idea was really to just find great founders um, with big ideas on the consumer side and write a check and try to help them um, both from an individual perspective, uh, as well as from a corporate perspective, right? So, you know, we we wrote, uh, at that time when we started, we were writing 10 lakh checks um, for 
Yeah, so it was basically a one crore post-money valuation. Um, and there were price rounds that were happening at that time. So this was, you know, 2012, uh, late 2011, early 2012. And that was kind of this, the, the norm. Um, you know, I think times uh, quickly saw that the market was adapting and started changing uh, the model for T-Labs uh, as the market was also changing. A lot of accelerators started popping up in 2012, 2013. Uh, most of them are no longer operating. Uh, I think Microsoft is one of the few that's still operating an accelerator in India. Uh, T-Labs has also moved from having a physical incubator to having a um, a virtual accelerator program. And even now that's kind of not, I'm not sure exactly what T-Labs is. I think they've kind of morphed T-Labs into T-Ventures. So it's kind of multi-stage uh, investing that they're doing now. Um, so yeah, there are not many accelerators left in India that I can think of. You know, I think uh, there was um, one out of Bombay that just got started last year or something. I'm drawing a blank on the name. Um, Venture I mean, Catalyst, I, I think yeah. it was. I mean, there are a lot of, uh, we, I mean, the search head from Sequoia, the sort of combination of virtual plus, uh, I mean, with pandemic, everything moved on to virtual, right? Yeah. You know, Surge, you know, is, is, is an interesting one because it's not your typical early stage accelerator that has been the traditional model uh, over the last seven, eight years. You know, Surge, you, you see companies that are coming in at the idea stage, but you also see companies that have been around and raised multiple rounds. They've been, you know, operating for four or five, six years before they go through the surge program. So I think surge has been really interesting in, in, in the fact that they can be almost multi-stage in their approach. Um, you know, they are uh, working with companies across multiple regions, like you said, the uh, the hybrid physical and virtual. Now, of course, it's all virtual, but um, really kind of, I, th I think Surge really changed the game uh, in terms of what people's expectations from an accelerator are. Uh, of course, it doesn't hurt that Sequoia is writing very large checks. Um, you know, I think it's a million and a half dollars uh, that they're writing per company. Uh, the valuations are variable. So, you know, they will, theoretically, they could take a company that's been around for four or five years, already has a $20 million valuation in India and still invest, and also take a company that is at an idea stage and maybe, you know, invest at a $5 million valuation, right? Um, so I think that's really interesting how they've done that. And they've done it incredibly well over the last year and a half, two years. Yes, I mean, there's some incredible companies coming out of uh, Surge. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and pretty much every VC firm is sort of trying uh, in terms of, I mean, linking it back to the community building, right? Like, uh, I think both Sequoia, Lightspeed and others are trying to sort of build this network of uh, companies and do more to attract startups. Um, I, I want to like a uh, little bit unpack uh, how you guys worked at T-Labs. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, in what exact role did you work there and like what was the approach in terms of uh, did you actually select the startups or you had like different uh, applications from the startups and you picked uh, who will actually work in the physical space what, what was the exact uh, model there yeah so you know it, like i said it was a very traditional accelerator model um i was asked to come on board 
basically to help with deal flow. Um, having launched Startup Saturday and Startup Weekend, I had a fairly strong network amongst founders uh, across Delhi and increasingly across the country. So um, I was asked to really focus on sourcing companies. So, you know, for batch one um, and batch two, there wasn't, yeah, we had an application process. Uh, you know, companies would come in and put in their applications, but a lot of it was really about Abhishek and I being on the ground, you know, traveling, meeting companies, talking to them, um, and in many cases, asking them to put in an application uh, as a formality. Um, but, you know, it was really driven by our existing networks. So, you know, um, founders that we knew might in, introduce us to other founders that they knew that were starting companies, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there was that uh, sourcing side. Once applications came in, we would run through the applications and kind of, you know, weed them out. And the companies that we liked, then we would start, you know, spending a little bit more time with them, interviewing them, diving into specifics of their business and kind of where they were and what they were doing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the companies that we liked, you know, we would make them an offer. Some, In some cases, uh, companies would try to negotiate that offer. In other cases, companies would turn down that offer. And, and in other cases, companies would fortunately accept the offer. So once the offer was accepted, we had an official start time for the program. Um, and, you know, like a Techstars or 500 startups, the companies were expected to move, uh, if they were from uh, outside Delhi, move to the NCR region and physically set up their offices in our offices in Noida. And, um, you know, we would all be working in the same space on a daily basis. Um, you know, we would invite on a weekly basis, we would invite different parts of the ecosystem, sometimes other uh, founders, in other cases, we had investors, angel investors, and VCs who would come. And, you know, the idea was to give a talk on a topic. Uh, and then also to just spend some time with the companies and build relationships. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's pretty much how it ran like a traditional accelerator program. And then once the pro it was a four month program, once the program was over, there would be a demo day, right? Uh, just like yeah. every other accelerator program. Mm -hmm. So uh, at some point you also started working with founded startups for their India strategy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, how did that come about? So I actually met 500 startups when I was running Startup Weekend in India. Um, I saw that they were doing Geeks on a Plane. Uh, this was in 2011. So 500 startups hadn't reached the level of notoriety that um, it did soon afterwards. Um, in Indian places like India, it, it was relatively unknown. So, you know, it was, uh, it was interesting kind of explaining to founders in India why it was cool that 500 startups was going to be at Startup Weekend. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I reached out to uh, 500 startups when I saw that they were doing Geeks on a Plane uh, to India for the first time and just said, hey, you know, if you guys are going to be in India, love to, you know, do a Startup Weekend around it. Love to have you at Startup Weekend. Um and had a couple of conversations with uh, Kristen and 
she ran all of the events and the geeks on the plane and, uh, and all of that when uh, at 500. So, you know, we talked through some of the plans and she's like, yeah, this sounds great. We've done startup weekend uh, in a lot of other places. So this sounds really interesting. We it'll give us a good kind of intro into the Indian market. So it was funny. They, um, they landed, uh, I think it was a Thursday night and Friday night, they were at Startup Weekend Delhi and they were there uh, pretty much, I think, if I remember correctly, all three days, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. That's how I met um, Dave and Paul and Kristen and Christine and everyone else. Uh, and, you know, spent a little bit of time on the sides, just introducing them to other folks in India, uh, across different cities, people that they may want to meet, founders, mostly founders, uh, very few investors, but mostly founders at that time. And, um, you know, when I was at T-Labs, uh, you know, we were in regular touch. Uh, I was sharing deal flow with them on a regular basis. Uh, Paul was making more regular trips to India to see and scout companies in India. So uh, I was helping him with um, meeting companies and founders that I had met or known uh, or even had invested in uh, across India. And, you know, the relationship just kind of grew from there. And then they asked me to come on board and, you know, run all of the India investments uh, in October 2012 is when I joined them. One of the interesting uh, things you wrote about while you were at uh, fan startups was your take on uh, food startups, right? And mm. there was a particular period of time where uh, a lot of uh, food delivery startups were going bust. And you correctly predicted that, uh, hey, this is not the whole sector and it's obviously overfunded, but uh, we sort of uh, will come out of this. And it did happen. So uh, how is it now seeing the whole food space right now? Like, you know, we have Swiggy and other companies doing sort of okay. I mean, we've come out of that uh, 2016 era where a lot of companies were going bust. Um, how do you see it now? You know, I think... Things are very different today than they were in 2019. Uh, you know, from a food startup perspective, um, I think the the pandemic, the lockdowns, the somewhat a um, little bit of fear around uh, going out to eat and things like that have really propelled some of these guys into a different stratosphere. Um, you know, I think the the thing that, you know, back in 2015, when I wrote that blog post um, that concerned me was that the uh, there, there was a cultural issue, right? For, for the most part, most Indians at that time, uh, and when I say most Indians, I mean most Indians above the age of 35, 40 uh, still preferred to eat at home. Uh, eating out was expensive. And it, it was also, uh, you know, from a, let's say, mid, mid-20s to mid-30s age group, it didn't really matter so much because you can call up pretty much any restaurant in, you know, a few kilometer radius and they would deliver to you. Um, you know, there was never any problems getting in the large cities, at least in the smaller mm -hmm. cities. Uh, I think it's different, but in large cities, you call up a restaurant and if it's two kilometers away, they'll deliver the food. And if the food isn't 
uh, cook properly, you can call them and they'll exchange it or they'll tell you, okay, next time you come in, uh, you know, we'll take 50 rupees off your bill or whatever that is. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so to me, it just didn't make sense. Why would I pay a middleman? Why, why should I introduce something in the middle when I can go straight to the source? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, now there was a component of flexibility, like, okay, you have a family of five and one person wants dominoes. Another person wants, you know, pizza. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, some Mexican food and somebody else wants pasta and somebody else wants Chinese. Okay. You just place that order in one place and you get it, kind of get everything. And I think that kind of started changing things, but the problem was really from a business perspective, I just didn't understand how any of these companies could ever make money because it, to me, it was, there was a ton of money that they would spend on marketing. They would sp lose money on every delivery. Uh, and a lot of that wouldn't change until a certain point and getting to that certain point, which is require a lot of venture capital to get you to that point. And a lot of them just didn't really understand logistics that well, right? The founders, they, they didn't come from a logistics background. And delivery is a logistics business. So you really do need to understand logistics to make that work, I think. So, you know, I think th those were some of the things that really concerned me about that space back then. I think fast forward to 2020, um, a lot of those things have been f changed, right? Like today, it is normal for non-technical, non-startup people to whip out their phone and want to order some food. Why? Because Geo made data ubiquitous in India. You know, I remember even in 2015, 2014, having conversations with relatives about why I need 3G data on my phone, right? Like they saw it as a waste of money. Mm. Like what, why do you need this? Right? I, well, this is what I live by. <laughs> right? Uh, no, now, to me, it was hilarious that people would be walking around with, you know, 30,000 rupee iPhones and Android phones, but not have any data on them. And when you go to somebody's house, the Wi Fi is turned off, they turn on the Wi Fi for a little while, they use it, and then they turn it back off. Mm -hmm. Right? And a lot of it was driven by cost. So when Geo just completely upended the whole market for data. I think that uh, was a huge shift that occurred at the end of 2016. The other thing uh, the, to add to 2016 was demonetization, right? I think that also forced a lot of people to become comfortable with paying online for certain things, right? Whether you were using Paytm or Mobiquick or a credit card or whatever, mm -hmm. people started becoming more comfortable paying online, whereas prior to that, most people still preferred to do COD, right? And yeah. for many different reasons, but I think those had a lot to do with it. Those things had a lot to do with it. I think the, the startups themselves, right? You, you, you saw a bunch of startups fail. You saw a, lot, a bunch of startups um, kind of morph into something else. Mm -hmm. uh, like Dunzo was a company that I saw in 2015. Um, and I passed on it because they were doing food delivery, right? Mm -hmm. And today, Dunzo, at least in Bangalore, is a verb, yeah. uh, right? Like, you know, so they morph. They, they 
they they picked up on the whole logistics uh, angle. They really doubled down on that. And they saw that, hey, food delivery by itself is too small of a category for us. We're going to expand it out to other things. And we're going to be really a logistics company. So, you know, I think founders have done amazing things in kind of adapting to the circumstances and those that couldn't have failed. So I think that has helped change the landscape considerably. Now, whether Swiggy um, is going to, or Zomato are going to be multi-billion dollar exits in the space, I don't know. That's way above my pay grade. But, you know, I, I think the, the founders of these companies, one, have the deep pockets to hire the right people to do this. They also have enough brand recognition nationally uh, to continue growing. Uh, I don't know what the economics are, what kind of relationships they have with the different restaurants and things like that. So I don't know how that, I know there's, you know, periodically there's a little bit of a, uh, a push and pull between the restaurant associations and, you know, these food delivery companies and, you know, then things quiet down again and they get ugly again. But you know, I think that that's not limited to just India. I think that's true everywhere. Even here, you see, you know, a lot of the delivery um, products that are out there. Uh, sometimes you have to scratch your head and say, "How does this? How does this work?" Um, but in the U.S., you know, because of the price insensitivity relative to India, uh, you know, I've seen plenty of times where it's like, "Okay, I can order from Uber Eats and I can pay a dollar more per." item or I can go directly to the restaurant and pick it up myself. Now, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I might wind up paying 10 to 15% more by using Uber Eats, but it gets me the convenience. Okay, fine. Maybe I'll still go ahead and pay for it. And a lot of people do just purely based out of convenience, right? Mm -hmm. In India, there's still that price sensitivity. So a lot of these guys, they can't mark up the meals that they are picking up from restaurants and also charge you a delivery fee and this, because a lot of people just say, no, no, it's, this is too much more. I'm not ready to pay 10 or 15% more for the convenience. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see kind of how some of these things play out over the next year or two, especially as um, you know, the pandemic hopefully continues to become less severe as vaccines get rolled out, as people start returning to the offices and, going out to dinner and uh, things like that. So it'll be interesting to see, but you know, I, I think that today there's a much better case to be made for food delivery than there was five years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm also bullish on the cloud kitchen space. I, yeah. I haven't figured out the economics of it all, but just the idea is very fascinating, right? Uh, for the cloud yeah. kitchen space as well. Well, look, I used to say this all the time. I was like, you know, uh, the Mumbai Dabbawalas, I will invest in those guys every day till Sunday. Mm. Because, you know, and if you think about it, they are a cloud kitchen, yep. right? We put a fancy name on it, but mm -hmm. these guys have been doing it for a hundred years. Uh, you know, they, they, they have a centralized kitchen, they, or a couple of centralized kitchens, they make all the food in one spot. So they have economies of scale over there. They have a proper logistics network that they've built out and they never get a meal wrong. They get mm -hmm. the right meal to the right place at the right time, always. Right. So the model works. There's no question that the model works and can work. Right. The question I think is more about are the people that are trying to upend this market, right? are they doing it with 
the right team of people? Do they have the right background? Do they understand the logistics? Can they run those cloud kitchens? Can they get to economies of scale? Um, and can they compete with folks like the Mumbai Dabalalas? Right? Mm-hmm. Like in terms of quality, in terms of accuracy, everything else. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think you know the cloud kitchens offer a huge opportunity, um, but you know sometimes what's been around for a hundred years still works better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I've seen the startup which is called like Cutty Roll, uh, which used to have physical stores and. The, the thought, the changed the whole model and said that we'll remove all the physical stores because their offering is such a way that it works very well for pickup and as well mm-hmm. as delivery. Their product is so niche that the delivery model works very well because certain products you can't deliver. I mean, even if you deliver, the experience is not going to be as great. Uh, the food is not going to be hot and you know you have to have more infrastructure to make sure the food is delivered in the right way. So for Curti Rolls, I think it made a lot of sense to just remove all the physical stores and they went sort of into this uh, cloud kitchen mode and they're doing sort of, ex- uh, sort of well, uh, I, I don't know the insider economics of it. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, as you talked about the, the geo effect when I was, uh, I mean, I, I'm still living in the US, but every year when I go back, oh, I used to see this difference in terms of data usage um, in US versus um, in India. And I think, to, still 2016, I was like, uh, data is extremely costly. I mean, we had to use data once you get used to it in the US because you're so used to having mobile data. And if you try to do that in India, it, it used to be extremely costly. And when I went back after the geo effect is, it's more cheaper than US. I mean, it's more convenient than US. And that basically appended the whole thing. And if like, if we write internet's history, like geo, the step geo took will have its own pages because it sort of gave access to data of which would probably take decades uh, in India if uh, we just, uh, if geo wasn't there. Yeah, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think prior to um, geo's launch, there was somewhere around a hundred million high-speed internet users across the country, right? Yeah. A hundred million out of 1.3 billion. After uh, Geo's launch, I think, was it 2019? I don't know what the 2020 numbers were, but I think it was 2019 when the numbers were over 350 million uh, high-speed internet users, right? So three and a half times uh, growth in three years. so I, uh, yeah, completely agree. I think Geo really has changed the game uh, in India. So after 500 startups, how did you get started with, uh, uh, I mean, the whole investing landscape right now is also sort of very different, right? We have AngelList India, we have Let's Venture, and we have a lot of angel communities, angel networks, and you've now, uh, I mean, working with AngelList India, right? So how did that come about? So... Angelist India, you know, I've known Angelist for many years. Uh, you know, there's probably multiple talks I gave in 2010, 2011 uh, on Angelist uh, in India when I was living there. Um, I've known Utsav, who runs Angelist India for many years. Also, um, Utsav reached out to me when he first. 
joined Angelist India and asked me to come on board and be an advisor. Uh, and I, you know, have been a big fan of Angelist for many years. So I said yes. Uh, and during that time, Utsav was working on some other things also that I also supported. And when they decided that they're going to uh, raise a small fund for backing syndicates on, in Angelist India, uh, he asked me to uh, come on board and be a part of the investment committee. So yeah, I said, yes, sure. Um, and the idea was basically, if you are an angel investor, you bring your deal onto the AngelList platform. We will look at the deal and we will also decide whether to write a check to support that syndicate lead. That's the whole idea. Um, and I, I don't remember the numbers now, but uh, I think I want to say that we've done a few dozen investments uh, in the course of a year and a half. Um, and yeah. you're part of the investment committee, right? Like how does Angelist yes. India, I mean, what is the thesis in or the lens that you guys look when you are funding startups? Because I'm assuming not every startup or every syndicate that is bought is funded. Uh, right. So what is the lens that the investment committee or you in particular are looking at when you are investing? So, you know, our, our default decision is to say yes because the way that we look at it is if there is a active angel investor um, who is bringing a deal onto the AngelList platform, this individual has likely done a good amount of due diligence on the deal already, has a thesis, has written up the thesis, has shared that thesis with people that are backing them on the platform. So, you know, there's multiple proof points that are already in place. So the way that we look at it is the collective, which is the fund, uh, the AngelList India Fund, mm -hmm. the default uh, option is to invest because we want to index the startups that are raising money in India, right? So we're we're not focused on a sector we're not focused on a stage nothing it's like hey these are all the deals that are happening uh on the angelus platform so let's index them mm -hmm. the times that we would say no to a deal is because of potentially uh something that is a red flag so you know if we really don't think that a something's going to work it's like i just i i'm too firmly against what the startup is doing. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine, say no. Um, if you know you feel like uh, there's just too much competition in a particular space, or if you feel like um, this is food delivery 2015 where everyone's just piling in with ridiculous valuations and things don't make sense, okay. You can choose to, to say no, because at the end of the day, we do need to be um, cognizant of the fact that, you know, there's a check being written and it has to make sense, right? Mm -hmm. So rather than, you know, uh, approaching it like a VC or an angel that, you know, perhaps doesn't have a default yes or no, we approach it with a default yes. We believe that there's been enough 
due diligence done on all of these deals before they appear on the AngelList platform. So these are good deals for us to likely say yes to, unless there's something really, really, really strongly one of us believe in that um, is a reason not to write a check. And, you know, we operate very quickly. Uh, we usually make a decision within 24 hours of the deal appearing on the platform. We uh, go s very simply by uh, a majority rule, right? So where there are three of us on the IC, if two of us say yes and one says no, uh, the deal happens. If two of us say yes and the third person didn't even get a chance to look at the deal, it's already done. We, got, we, we need two people to say yes. Mm -hmm. um, so it moves very quickly. And, you know, we don't operate in the sense that we are doing, you know, um, weekly IC calls and reviewing all the deals uh, all at one time. We operate in real time. So if a deal comes onto the platform today, it'll be shared with us today. We'll get a chance to review it and ask uh, questions. Um, and we do that all in real time. So to, to me as an outsider or sort of an LP uh who looked at uh, AngelList India, to me, it looks like uh, the collective is sort of uh, the, the main thesis or the main function of the collective is to, uh, when you compare it with like AngelList US versus India, you have this, I mean, even if you compare any number of factors, right, uh, whether the deal flow, number of startups created or number of investors, number of VC funds, I mean, it's 10x more in US versus uh, India. And to me, collective looks like, okay, we are going to, uh, be a supportive fund uh, to create this ecosystem. To me, as an outsider, it it looks like that. Is that a fair assessment? Mm, not really. I mean, I think that's one of the things that the collective does. But the collective, you know, at the end of the day, it's a fund. It needs to make money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we don't think a startup or uh, a syndicate lead is investing in something that we think is going to eventually lead to a positive outcome, then we're not going to invest in that. Um, you know, if we think that there is uh, at the end of the day, it's a fund and it has to make money. Right. Yeah, so yeah. We, we, we approach it with that perspective, but, you know, we also recognize that angelist syndicates are, or syndicates in general are a relatively new thing in India. And, you know, in some cases, a syndicate lead might get a 50 lakh allocation. In other cases, you might get a five drawer allocation into a company. Well, where's that syndicate lead going to go? Mm -hmm. Right. So now, as you look at Angelist India today, you're going to see more funds running syndicates on the platform. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not just individuals, but it's also funds running syndicates because it's a great way for you to round out a deal with people that, you know, can be helpful, mm -hmm. um, can be value add and um, will help the company. So, for example, um, and you, you, I mean, you see this in the U.S. also in Angelist U.S. and Angelist India is starting to follow that same model where funds might have invested in a company and um, you now have pro rata in that company. And this, let, let's say it's three years in, your fund is now exhausted. You can't write another follow-on check into the company, or maybe you can write one, but it's a smaller check than the allocation that your pro rata has. So you open up that pro rata to 
other people to, uh, to come into. And whatever carry comes out of that goes back to your LPs. So it's kind of a win-win for a lot of funds as well. Uh, so yes, it is, part of it is about building the ecosystem. Part of it is about getting deal flow, getting into deal flow that you wouldn't necessarily be able to otherwise. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so on a similar uh, tangent, right? Like how, how are you thinking about syndicate leads? Like are you actively... Uh, you know, reaching out to individuals, ex-founders to create syndicates or are, you know, active angel investors coming and becoming syndicate leads? How, how are you thinking about who's the next syndicate lead? Yeah, so I think, you know, early on, it was more of an outbound uh, model where we went out to people that we knew were active angel investors, people that we knew uh, had access to high quality deal flow and uh, kind of handheld them in setting up a syndicate and walking through it. Uh, but, you know, uh, what was that, like three years ago? So I think a lot has changed now. Now it, we don't really need to go out uh, and invite people to start an Angelist syndicate. Like if you're an angel investor in, Indi- in India, you know that Angelist India exists yeah. and you know what the value add for you as an angel investor is. So you might have some questions, you might need some support in kind of just running through the process, but it's no longer like, hey, this is why you should do it. You should open one up. Um, I think pretty much everyone who is actively investing uh, has some sort of syndicate, whether they're actually doing deals uh, or not is a different story. Like, you know, I've had an Angelist syndicate uh, for many years, but unfortunately, I haven't been able to do a single deal in my India Angelist Syndicate because all the companies that I have wound up investing in are registered as Singaporean entities or U.S. entities. So mm-hmm. I just I can't do those deals in India. And the couple that I did into Indian Private Limited companies had very small allocations that were available, so I couldn't uh, bring them to the syndicate. Um, so my syndicate essentially is inactive uh, right now, but it's still there. And you know, if I come across a deal, I can put it on the syndicate immediately, right? So mm-hmm. that changes the game for me as an individual angel investor. I can say, oh, you know what? Instead of writing a 25 lakh check into a company, I can now write a five lakh check and raise another 45 lakhs from a bunch of other people. Mm-hmm. So now I have 50 lakhs into the company. I get carry on that. And, you know, it's a huge win for me. Mm-hmm. I can invest in more companies uh, with uh, a lot more leverage because now I can go to the founders and say, hey, I know I can get 50 lakhs or a crore into your company. So even the founders can be like, well, great. We don't have to deal with, you know, one person who's putting in five lakhs. We'll deal with one person who's putting in a grower, mm-hmm. right? So I think it changes the dynamics considerably. And I think a lot of angel investors in India have finally seen this and have um, decided that it makes sense for them, as well as a lot of angel investors that are planning to raise a fund mm-hmm. of their own. For them also, it's been uh, great because now they can say, okay, let me invest in 10 companies. Let me invest two lakhs or three lakhs each in 10 companies instead of investing, you know, uh, 15 lakhs in two companies. Mm-hmm. 
right? So you can build out a broader portfolio much more quickly. Mm -hmm. And because now it's on a platform, you can now go out and you can hopefully, in a lot of cases, show movement in that portfolio relatively quickly. So when you go out to raise a fund, you can now show at least paper uh, markups on your portfolio relatively quickly. So a lot of um, aspiring fund managers are also using AngelList India uh, for that. Yeah, I've been following some of the uh, early stage uh, fund managers uh, and some of them are doing a really phenomenal job. I mean, funding some great companies uh, yeah. in the last couple of years. Uh, you, you sort of touched upon this point of, you know, uh, you've been investing in companies, but they're registered in Singapore and US. And recently, I'm sure you've noticed uh, there have been a little bit of conversation slash, you know, controversy around uh, some angel investors in India talking about that, you know, why Cominator is making Indian companies uh, flip outside in flip to outside India. Uh, what is your take on that? So, you know, look, my take on it is pretty simple. Um, and it's the same t take that I had w when I was at 500. If you are an Indian company focused on the Indian market, you should be an Indian private limited company. Mm -hmm. There's no question. Like if you are focused only on the Indian market, if you are Swiggy, it makes sense for you to be a Indian private limited company, unless you are planning for international expansion day one, right? Um, but if you are a company that is looking at the global market day one, like a SaaS company, it probably makes sense for you to be a US entity. Because if your customers are going to be in the US, if your uh, investors are going to be split across the US and India, it probably makes sense for you to be a US entity. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, what exactly yeah. is driving it? Uh, I mean, in my experience, it's driven mostly because the LP base being hugely international and Indian combination, that's one of the main reasons I see it. Uh, but what do, you, what do you think is the main reason why this happens in general? So I think a lot of it has to do with ease of doing business, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> Just doing business in India is a nightmare. Mm. It is, there's so much paperwork and complexities and compliance, and it just keeps getting worse and worse every year, yeah. right? So th there's that. There is a certain fear that international investors have about being able to get their money out of India, mm -hmm. okay? Um, there are fears and legitimate fears that international investors have about taxation in India, mm. Um Right and, and retroactive taxation in India, right? So, uh, what you're saying is correct. There is real reasons why LPs and funds and in a lot of cases angel investors don't want to invest in an Indian entity. Okay. Then there's more practical reasons why they don't want to invest in Indian entities. Part of that is they just don't understand the legal structure. And for them to spend the time and money on understanding the legal structure, it's they're just not going to be able to do any investment. So they'd rather just say, hey, if you can flip this to a U.S. company, we'll write a check immediately. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you can't, we might take three months or six months to understand the paperwork in India and then do it. That's another problem. Every company in India has different paperwork. Mm -hmm. There's no standard. Right. So at least in the U.S., if you're doing an early stage round, 
You can use series seed docs. You can use the safe. You can use the 500 kiss. You can use uh, the series seed convertible note. Like these are standard documents that have been around for years, in some cases, more than a decade where everybody understands them. Every lawyer understands them. So now all you really need to do is just say, Hey, I'm using a standard safe. Okay. Signed. I don't, I don't even need to give a lawyer the document to review. In India, that's not the case. I just did one deal in August and, you know, this was kind of a pre series a round uh, post seed round. And I kid you not, the SHA was over 110 pages. And I was like, this is ridiculous. (laughs) How am I supposed to understand this and read through this? Like, I mean, fine, I can do it because I've done it for a number of years at 500 and I understand what to look for and whatnot. But the average person is not going to do that. The average fund manager is not going to do that. They just don't, they don't have the time to sit there and read through 110 pages of legalese. Now they give it to their lawyer. Their lawyer is going to charge them $500 an hour mm-hmm. or more to read it. And they're going to say, well, this is Indian law. I don't even understand. So now I have to go and find a lawyer in India mm-hmm. who I can trust, which is that in itself is a huge nightmare, finding a good lawyer in India that you can trust to read through the documents and give you a proper assessment. Yeah. So. The, you know, these are, these are practical things and these are real things. Now, I think, you know, <laughs> over the course of uh, the last year, you've seen a lot of uh, nationalism uh, amongst the startup uh, ecosystem in India. So I think that's driving a lot of this conversation again. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think investors are also realistic. Like, you know, I invested in a company back in 2014 that was it was first registered as an indian entity i don't remember 100% but i think we invested in that indian entity they went through the accelerator program and they were able to raise money from a bunch of investors in the us so they flipped the company to a us entity And then later on, they flipped it back to an Indian entity because investors uh, said, hey, you're an Indian entity. You should be registered in India. You're focusing on the Indian market. Makes sense. Mm. So they flipped it again. So lawyers made out like bandits, (laughs) (laughs) you know, flipping and flipping and flipping. But, uh, you know, investors said, look, this is what makes sense. This is what you should be doing because this is what your market is and this is not going to change. Great. So they did it. Right. So I think that there, there needs to be a balance between realism and idealism. Um, ideally, yeah, sure. Register your company in, in India. We'd all love to invest in Indian companies and, you know, have uh, great outcomes for the uh, Indian ecosystem and taxes being paid and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is can't trust the Indian government to do the right thing by the investors, right? The inv- Indian government cares about taxes. They'll go in and they'll retroactively change tax laws. They'll go in and, you know, penalize people. And it's like, great, what are we going to do here? Now, just because you register overseas doesn't eliminate all of those potential risks, but it does limit some of them. So, you know, I think there has to be a little bit of a practical approach to it and just say, look, if you are a SaaS company targeting 
you know, the US and Europe, there's no reason for you to be an Indian company. You should yeah. be in a US company. All your revenue is coming in over there. Fine. You have, you know, a lot of your team in India. Fine. Mm -hmm. But all your revenue is happening, coming in from uh, overseas. And it's easier to manage. I mean, I've experienced this personally and uh, the transaction speed is much higher when the companies are registered outside India. Yeah. And uh, for people who argue uh, it's about nationalism, the only counterpoint I can give is the real thing you need to protect is founder equity and, you know, uh, shareholder equity, right? If the whole way you have to think about, if you're thinking about it in a nationalistic sense is in the event of an exit, are the founders, are the Indian employees, are the Indian LPs are in a disadvantage or an advantage, right? Is this creating on a long-term basis more exits for them or are they losing on the incentives? So I always thought about it as at the end of the day, is the cash or whatever is coming out of this is fairly distributed between all the participating entities or not. It doesn't really matter if it's registered here or there. I mean, at the end of the day, you still have to operate a subsidiary in, in India and you have to obviously abide by the laws of it that comes with it. Yeah. So I've always thought that it's at the end of the day, the compensation and the value, uh, is it equally trickling down? Because at the end of the day, you need more foreign investment in India today, right? So we are not at a stage where we have four big companies and trickling down uh, values or that we have a robust ecosystem, right? We are still way behind, maybe at 10 yeah. or 15 years uh, from where US or even I mean, China is. Um, so in that sense, we, we can't have, uh, we can't force outside investors into coming, you know, not investing at all. So I've always thought about it in the sense that if the compensation at the end of the day is equally distributed and is coming into the hands of the people who are working on it, then I think it's good, right? At the end of the day, that's all that matters. And are, are the shareholders who are believing and taking this huge risk? Because at the end of the day, the whole venture business is a you know highest risk business that there is. Uh, yeah. Another thing I wanted to really talk to you about is uh, you started your career in sort of near the 98 crisis and you've also seen the 2008 crisis. And I don't know what 2020 is. Is it really a crisis or an opportunity in the sense of, uh, you know, uh, just the markets in general, right? Because we have such a crazy year. Uh, how, I mean, what is the takeaway for you? Like, what are we in the midst of? I mean, we've talked about this uh, in our chats before. Uh, how, how are you looking at 2020 and 2021? Sort of the craziness in the markets or uh, are we in a crisis? Are we not in a crisis? Or do you see a pop in the bubble or what is happening? How, how are you looking at it? Yeah, look, I, if you look at the public markets, there's no crisis. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's parting like it's 1999. And, you know, to me, it, it, is, it, it is a reason to pause and to really think carefully about, you know, investing in public markets right now. Um, because I think there are certain individual companies that will do fine, uh, regardless of what happens. Uh, but then there is the broader market and there's only so, so much money you can continue to print, uh, before it starts catching up with you. Now, what is that point? I don't know. Can the U S print 10, 
15, 20 trillion dollars before you know inflation spirals out of control? I don't know. I, I don't think so. But you know, I think we're already at eight trillion dollars printed in 2020 um, through stimulus. So you know, at some point we're gonna have to pay for that. Um, and you know, we could pay for it through you know increased economic activity, uh, or we can pay for that through you know uh, uncontrolled inflation. Um, but it's also very closely linked to what other countries are going to see and what they're doing, right? The countries like India uh, have a lot less flexibility in how much money they can print. Um, you know, so if I think about India, like I want less exposure to the rupee right now, a lot less exposure to the rupee doesn't necessarily mean that I want less exposure to Indian startups, mm -hmm. but I want less rupee exposure. So if I have, you know, cash sitting in rupees, uh, that's probably not a great idea right now, because I do think that Indian inflation is going to outpace US inflation for some time. Um, I think, you know, the US markets are there's a whole bunch of different factors that have driven the markets from the lows of March to the highs of December. Um, you know, vaccine development, vaccine deployment, um, you know, overall economic activity being less, less worse than anticipated. Um, you know, the rebound in uh, the job market, um, all of these things have had a significant impact on the markets, uh, the election, of course. Um, but, you know, I think now, once you have the new administration coming in, you have new policies, um, you have new tax policies, I think some of these things are going to make a significant difference uh, in where the economy goes and where um, the markets go. If we see the new administration change tax laws very abruptly um, because let's just say that, you know, Democrats have the House and the Senate. Um, I think you're going to see a massive sell-off in the markets. Uh, but I also don't think that they're dumb enough to do that uh, abruptly. I think, you know, there might be revised taxes. If you are a high earner, okay, taxes might increase they may remove some of the limitations on, uh, or some of the um, benefits that it gave on estate taxes. Um, so they're, they're, they're gonna find places that they can get money back into the government. Um, hopefully it's done in a way that is not too abrupt and um, isn't gonna have a massive impact on um, economic activity. Um, you know, that's, I think that's something that they have to think about is like, you know, th there's a certain part of the population that's going to continue to need stimulus and support for some time. And that part of the economy is also more likely to spend more, more money as a percentage of how much they have coming in. Um, so they, they're going to need to be very careful on kind of choking that spigot too, too soon. So I'm very cautiously optimistic of 
public markets in 21. Um, you know, I think there are certain sectors that should do really well in 21 uh, if the vaccines get deployed across the globe, you know, travel, obvious one uh, that, that that will do very well uh, under those circumstances. I think, you know, uh, F&B also will probably do well because, you know, I don't know about you, but when it's safe, the first thing I'm going to do is hit up all my favorite restaurants in person and go sit there and eat and then get on a plane and do that in other countries, right? And I'm sure there's a lot of other people who are thinking the same thing, right? So I think the certain sectors are going to do well. Others are probably not going to do as well, right? Um, and I think Zoom is a good proxy for some of the areas that may not do as well once people get back to quote, a normal uh, life, right? Uh, they're not going to be sitting on uh, Zoom calls all the time. So fewer Zoom uh, paid subscriptions, perhaps. Uh, but I think, you know, other tech companies will continue to do well. Um, because I think that has become such a deeply ingrained part of who people are today, that like you said earlier on in the conversation, people are going to be far more willing to start building relationships um, online because they now know that it's possible. They also now know that it's not as difficult as they once thought it was. And there's a physical limitation that has been removed, right? Like I don't necessarily need to be sitting in Seattle for us to have a conversation or for us to have a meaningful conversation. We can do it on Clubhouse, we can do it over Zoom, we can do it on a podcast, whatever, right? So I think people have now, their, their mindset has shifted. So I think tech in general will continue to do well. Um, how well is the question? If the overall economy starts to, uh, kind of falter, then I think tech will get hit very badly because tech valuations are through the roof today. Yeah, especially, I mean, that's a good point you brought up is Zoom, right? I mean, you they have right now what uh, 100x uh, the revenue valuation. So yeah. I think it it's hard to sustain or grow into that valuation. I'm more bullish on sort of like Shopify being 100x, they'll probably yeah. on a long-term basis will grow into their valuation. But someone like Zoom, they have to figure out like how to monetize this and sort of uh, grow in a linear fashion over the coming 10 years to, you know, to make sense of this absurd valuation. Yeah. Yeah. So the next thing I want to talk to you about is uh, uh, your current role at Workum. I mean, you guys started uh, in a crazy year. Uh, and how was that experience like? Yeah. So, you know, I... I've known Sumitra for quite some time um, and I had invested in the company last year or now 2019 and had seen kind of a lot of the different iterations of the product and kind of the different direction the company uh, had taken early on. And once uh, lockdowns started occurring, kind of, you know, the direction that they moved forward in and the pace at which they were moving forward. And Sumitra and I would regularly have conversations about um, product strategy, et cetera. Um, and, you know, a half hour call typically turned into three or four hours. And, um, you know, from, from, from the beginning, I've always felt like that there was a huge opportunity uh, in this space, partly because, you know, address books are broken, uh, CRMs are broken, uh, 
social media platforms like LinkedIn are broken for professional networking. Mm-hmm. So there's, there, there, there's just a lot of gaping holes. And then there's also this new emerging user, which is the prosumer, right? Um, like, hey, I'm not going to spend $1,000 a year for a LinkedIn professional account or whatever, uh, whatever it is uh, for like sales navigator and things like that. But mm-hmm. I'll spend 20 bucks a month for you know something that helps me manage my contacts a little bit better right and i think at the heart of what workamo is doing is it's about helping people build better relationships uh virtually right and that's kind of the world that we have been living in for the past nine months and that's probably the year that that's probably the type of uh communication that's going to dominate our relationships for quite some time. Um, so how can we do it better, right? And that's kind of the court with which Workamo is being built is like, how can we build better relationships with people? And how can we foster those relationships, right? So we've got a bunch of things that we uh, have been talking about even before I joined. Uh, there are things that we've been building that we think are going to help with that. Um, you know, we, we're working on a lot of different things that, um, you know, kind of straddle a whole bunch of different ideas, um, that people have. And I don't want to give too much away. I don't want to, <laughs> uh, talk about that too much yet because a lot of them are still in the discussion phase and some of them are in, um, uh, in development right now. But, um, you know, as a, somebody who's primarily been out of an operating role for about 10 years now. It's been really exciting to get back into the operating side of things. Um, You know, rolling up your sleeves, like, you know, writing code. Uh, I don't do a whole lot of writing code, but, you know, whatever code I write is not uh, product related. It's more of like, hey, how do we get something done quickly? That type of stuff. Uh, But, you know, writing code, looking at processes, managing our data. And it's it's been so refreshing to kind of just roll up your sleeves and dive into so many different aspects of a very, very early stage company, right? So, Mm -hmm. you, you know, for the last decade or so kind of sat on the other side talking to founders uh, about you know what stage they were at how they were solving some of the problems that they were facing and now uh, sitting on the other side it's like okay great now i gotta you know talk to all of those people that i spoke to over the last 10 years and ask them for help on (laughs) solving these problems that we're trying to solve um so you know it's it's been a like a lot of fun. I thought it was going to be, uh, actually, I didn't know what to expect because um, it all happened very, very quickly. Um, and it wasn't something that I had been planning for or looking for. It was just you know, out of a conversation that uh, Samitha and I were having, it just kind of turned into this and it went from a conversation to me being on full, uh, full time within a week. Um, so I didn't really have any expectations. It was just like, okay, I guess I'm doing this. <laughs> um, and, you know, kind of really diving into everything from customer acquisition to retention, to marketing, to product, to design, to features, to 
you know, long-term product road mapping um, has been a lot of fun. So uh, you, you talked about the address book being broken. And one of the things when I uh, used Workamo or um, is I had this idea and this is sort of an extrapolation of, uh, I, I'm sure you've heard of Lunch Club. Yeah. Uh, I think what Lunch Club effectively did was because we're all sort of connected on this invisible social network called Gmail. Yeah. Everyone pretty much who access, who has access to internet is this on the social network called Gmail and no company has effectively used uh, the integration to Gmail and sort of built a layer on top of Gmail. Obviously Google did, but no other outside company did very well. I think one of the trends I'm seeing is to exploit uh, this Gmail as a network. And I, when I saw Workamo and what Workamo is doing, I sort of thought that it's not just about Gmail as a network, but on the internet as a network sort of exploitation, but lunch club sort of fits perfectly into that scenario because they have leveraged the fact that everyone has a Gmail account so very well. And to an extent, your uh, product also leverages the fact that uh, we use Gmail and the initial version being very well integrated into Google Calendar and et cetera. Uh, this idea of integrating with Gmail and exploiting and building on top of Gmail is sort of an interesting idea that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, the next topic I, I want to sort of uh, touch base on and coming back to your original, uh, your own startup experience, right? Uh, you were trying to sort of link between uh, uh, sort of a marketplace for bringing employers and employees. After all these years, did you actually find, um, you know, uh, I mean, I, in retrospect, you might be thinking that this is this idea you had was too early for the game, right? Like, did you now in all this experience of in, investing and, in, you know, looking at various pitch decks, did you find companies which are now solving that problem? Well, Urban Clap is probably the closest one um, that kind of went after what I had uh, tried to go after. Um, you know, it was kind of, and of course, Urban Clap is uh, grown way beyond that now, but my idea was to really focus on unskilled domestic labor, right? And the cooks, the nannies, the chefs, the uh, drivers, um, you know, cleaning people, the uh, somebody who can do some basic plumbing work or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Like everybody in India is always looking for help. Mm -hmm. And that was the idea. Um, and I think Urban Clap has probably gone after that market the best. Um, you know, there have been a bunch of other companies that I've met uh, over the years that have tried to go after it. Um, and, you know, most of them are uh, are out of business uh, at this point. But, you know, it's, it's a very difficult space to operate in. And, you know, one of the biggest challenges that I think even Urban Clap uh, faced were the two uh, two major things which were security and quality and you know if you have people that are not on your payroll it's very difficult for you to really manage and assess either of those things if they are people on your payroll um, it's a little bit easier for you to uh, try to manage quality um, and hopefully you're doing everything that you can to 
manage security, but you know the in overall infrastructure in India doesn't allow for background checks, right? There's no way for anybody to get background checks done on everyone. Um, and you know you have a police verification system, which is completely and utterly broken. Uh, in my opinion, and really does nothing. I've never met anybody who said, yeah, we got police verification done for an employee or whatever. And it came back negative saying that, oh, this person has committed a crime. Never heard it ever. So, you know, that I think is a big problem. And that opens up uh, a huge can of worms. I think today things are very different than they were in 2007. When I was trying to do this, people are far more comfortable with doing things online, doing transactions online, meeting people online, um, or having somebody referred to you online and then kind of taking it offline afterwards. Uh, that wasn't the case 13 years ago. So I think, you know, a lot has changed and I think it, it's still a very difficult problem to solve, but uh, people are cracking aspects of it now, which is good to see. This has been a really good conversation and we're sort of coming uh, to the end of our conversation so uh, any interesting content that you follow that uh, you'd like to suggest to our uh, listeners i mean be it podcasts or books or blogs that sort of help you in the way you think and uh, sort of you follow yeah um so you know i i, I haven't been following any particular blogs uh, as of recently uh, there's a lot of really great content all across the spectrum. So, you know, I'll read a blog post on Substack, then I'll read another blog post that someone put on on WordPress. Then there's some really great Twitter threads that a lot of founders and investors put out, which are really awesome. So Twitter's still kind of like a really important part of my uh, consumption. I'm, I'm less active uh, uh, in terms of tweeting these days, uh, but I am still very active in terms of consuming off of Twitter. Um, and some really fantastic uh, tweet storms that people put out. So that's one. Uh, Clubhouse is another. I, I, I've really fallen in love with Clubhouse over the last couple of months. You know, to me, it's like real-time podcasts. Um you know, there are some really fantastic conversations on all kinds of topics uh, that are happening in real time, right? So yeah. I, I'm not time shifting my listening to a podcast. Instead, I can engage with people in real time. So that, that's been really, uh, really cool. So my podcast listening has uh, virtually gone to zero uh, over the course of the last year. I was a huge podcast uh, fanatic in 2005, 2006. Um, two of my favorite podcasts were podtech.net by Jim Furrier. And then um, Greg Gallant did Venture Voice here in New York. Uh, Greg recently relaunched Venture Voice. Uh, so I am trying to listen to that periodically. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, there's a lot of great content all over the place. And, you know, it's, I think at this point, it's kind of like uh, like an a la carte menu of just pick what you're looking for in a particular given point in time. And there's some great content around that one topic. Go consume it and move on to the next one. Um, I think those days of like, hey, I'm going to follow uh, 
Brad Feld's blog and religiously wait for Brad to put a blog post out. I don't think those are there anymore. Like, you know, yeah, sure. I'll look at Brad's blog. I'll look at Fred Wilson's blog, but I'm not like sitting here waiting for them to put out a blog post anymore because there's so much more uh, really high quality content that's out there. You know, whether you're talking about YouTube, like Gary Tan's YouTube channel, um, you know, he started, I, I guess, a year ago and has completely blown up. Uh, so, you know, I'm a big fan of Gary's uh, YouTube content. Uh, I have my own YouTube channel that I've been putting out content a little less regularly than I would like, but, you know, um, kind of that's been another place where I've spent a lot of time consuming content is just following and reading and watching uh, people uh, talk about video as a medium. Um, so that's been an area that's been a lot of interest to me over the last couple of years. Um, so I've taught myself video editing. I've taught myself uh, a whole bunch of stuff around that. And that's been a, a fun experience to, to kind of learn from a lot of uh, folks that have some really great content uh, about video production. Uh, not professional, but, you know, uh, amateur video production. I mean, finally, uh, what's the best way for people to reach you? Probably Twitter. P-J-A-I-N on Twitter is probably the best way to reach me. Uh, my DMs are open. Uh, if people want to pitch, there's a form on my blog, uh, pj.me slash pitch dash me. Uh, if I remember correctly, just go there and put your pitch in. And if it looks like it's something that uh, is of interest, I'll reach out. Uh, yeah, so those are the two best ways. This has been a great and fascinating conversation, Pankaj, and I look forward to more conversations on Clubhouse with you. Natraj, thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Thank you. Thank you.